Welcome to Rants and Reason. I am Chuck. I am Karen. I am a liberal. And I am a conservative. And as Abraham Lincoln reminds us, we are not enemies, we are friends. We are friends. Mm-hmm. And it is? Meme Monday. Meme Monday. Yeah. You want to tell us about what this meme says? Uh, sure. Well, this is a meme that I think a new member sent you. I don't have the name in front of me, but this meme tried to show that NYC has too much power in our presidential elections. New York City. Yes. Okay. And it states it, it states 11 facts and ends with an opinion. Mm-hmm. So we'll go over it fact by fact. It says there are 3,141 counties in the U.S., Trump won 3,084, Clinton won 57. There are 62 counties in New York. Trump won 46, Clinton won 16. Clinton won the popular vote by 1.5 million votes in the five counties that encompass New York City. The Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Richmond, and Queens, Clinton received well over 2 million more votes than Trump. And the Clinton won four of the five counties. Trump won Richmond. Therefore, these five counties alone accounted for Clinton winning the popular vote of the entire country. These five counties, this is another fact that asserts, comprise 319 square miles. The U.S. is comprised of 3,797,000 square miles. Here's where he throws his opinion in. When you have a country that encompasses almost 4 million square miles, it would be ludicrous to even suggest that the vote of those in a mere 319 square miles should dictate the outcome of a national election. Now, we discovered that this meme stemmed from um, an email that went viral based on an article from the right-wing site Breitbart. Now, this goes far much further than the article on Breitbart did and distorting facts, but even the Breitbart article was kind of distorted and was debunked. But the email pushes it way, way further. Right. Researching point by point. The first point was that there are 3,141 counties in the U.S., and this is correct. And the second was that Trump won 3,084 of those. That is false. Clinton won 57 also false. According to the Associated Press, Clinton won 487 counties. There are 62 counties in New York. This is correct. Trump won 46. True. Clinton won 16. True. Clinton won the popular vote by 1.5 million votes. This is false. Clinton won the popular vote by 3 million votes. In the five counties that encompass New York City, Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Richmond, and Queens, Clinton received well over two million more votes than Trump. Clinton won four of five of these counties. Trump won Richmond. This is also false. Clinton's New York win was 1.5 million. The next point was, therefore, these five counties alone counted for Clinton winning the popular vote of the entire country. Again, this is false. Clinton would have won the popular vote by another 1.5 million without New York City. The next point said these five counties comprise 319 square miles. This is true. And the last point that the U.S. is comprised of 3,797,000 square miles 
this is also true. I'm not really sure how they make the equivalency of square miles should equal votes. <laughs> right. Well, no matter. Overall, we rate the context of this meme false. Right. And despite being factually wrong, the email implies that a small elite in urban areas have too much power. In fact, the opposite's true. Now, throughout our history, smaller states have had proportionately more power than larger states. The Constitutional Convention addressed multiple concerns in the process of designing the new Congress. The first was a relationship of smaller states to larger ones. The battle between big and small states drove most of the convention and nearly ended hopes of creating a national government. Pennsylvania Delegate Benjamin Franklin summed up the disagreement. If a proportional representation takes place, the small states contend that their liberties will be in danger. If an equality of votes is to be put in place, large states say their money will be in danger. When a broad table is to be made and the edges of the planks do not fit, the artist takes a little from both and makes a good joint. That's what Franklin said. And the good joint that emerged from weeks of stalemate was called the Great Compromise, and it created a legislature with a house where membership was determined by state population and a Senate where each state had two seats regardless of population. The compromise enabled the convention teetering on the brink of dissolution to continue. The convention determined that a census of population conducted every 10 years would enable the House to adjust the distribution of its membership on a regular basis. The method, however, proved very controversial. Southern delegates argued that their slaves counted in the population. Now, that would yield them more representatives. Mm -hmm. Northern delegates countered that slaves were property and shouldn't be counted at all. The result? The three-fifths compromise. Where slaves were counted as three-fifths of a free person. I'm not really sure because no fifth of them was free, so I don't know how they got three-fifths out of that. But Now, this rule was defended during the Constitution as a necessary compromise, giving the peculiar, that's in quotes, state of slaves as both property and moral individuals subject to criminal law. Virginia's James Madison wrote in Federalist 54 that the reasoning appeared to be a little strained in some points, but fully reconciles me to the scale of representation which the convention has established. After the Civil War, the 14th Amendment ordered the census to count every person equally, despite color. The Electoral College was written into the Constitution as the 12th Amendment. There are 535 electoral votes. 435 represent one per representative, which is capped at 435 due to the Permanent Apportion Act of 1929. 100 represent each senator and three for D.C. It seems fair until you consider that Wyoming has one electoral vote per 189,000 residents, and California has one electoral vote per 678,000 people. Our Senate skews power to smaller states with two senators per state, regardless of population. For example, California gets one senator per 18 million people, and say Wyoming again gets one senator per 284,000 people. 
this gives Wyoming residents roughly 63 times more Senate representation per citizen than California. And the two-senator rule can never be changed under the Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, which very briefly lays out the extremely demanding procedures for amending the Constitution. It says that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. It should be noted that James Madison came to the Constitutional Convention with a plan that would have two houses based proportionately on population. This was called the Virginia Plan. It proposed that the lower houses be elected directly from the citizens and the upper house, the Senate, would be elected by members of the lower house. Now, this this plan was pretty vehemently opposed by members of the smaller states, and some of them threatened to walk out there. Right, right. And there was also a New Jersey plan that proposed one state, one vote. Under both plans, the executive would be elected by the legislature. Various methods for selecting the executive were offered, reviewed, and then discarded during the Constitutional Convention. Legislative direct, gubernatorial, electoral, and lottery. A decision resulted only late in the convention when the Committee of Detail presented executive election by special electors selected by the state legislatures. This compromise preserved states' rights, increased the independence of the executive branch, and avoided popular election. That's one thing they really didn't want was a popular election. Right. Can <laughs> it go so far as right. to have a lottery? <laughs> just like, yeah, just put yeah. your name in this hat. We're going to draw you out. But it shows how much they had complete confidence in people, right? Yeah. And really how much power they thought the president was going to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They didn't expect the president to have that much power. Now, the provisions for electing the president and vice president have been among the most amended in the Constitution. Initially, electors voted for two individuals without differentiating between the ballot for president and vice president. The winner of the largest block of votes, so long as it was a majority of all the votes cast, would win the presidency. The individual with the second number of largest number of votes would become vice president. In 1796, this meant that John Adams became president, Thomas Jefferson became vice president, despite opposing each other. I actually kind of like that. I think it's probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That way you would have one in each party. Right. You'd Opposite have more representation. The, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Give I the like vice that. president a little bit more power than... Right. That's kind of the way the government sort of, when it does run, it runs with that grind of opposition. So, yeah, I think Pence basically only shows up if there's like a flower shop opening somewhere. Well, that's in because Vermont. he's he's too busy planning his, well, that's his true. campaign. His campaign. <laughs> anyway, yeah. yeah. And Biden, they they tried to I don't know that they let Biden out much. And when they did it tended to be a mistake. <laughs> I love Joe Biden, though. Anyway, I, I love the memes. The memes were some of the greatest memes ever. <laughs> they were. They were. Now, the 1800 presidential election further tested the presidential selection system when Jefferson and Aaron Burr, the Republican candidates for president and vice president, tied at 73 electoral ballots each. The House, under the Constitution, then chose between Jefferson and Burr for president. 
They ended up choosing Jefferson, and Burr got really mad and went and shot Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then we have the 12th Amendment. After the experiences of these elections, Congress passed and the states ratified the 12th Amendment to the Constitution. Now, this was added in time for the 19, or 19, for the 1804 election. The amendment stipulated that the electors would now cast two votes, one for president, the other for vice president. While states varied in how they selected presidential electors through the 19th century, electors today are uniformly popularly elected rather than appointed and pledged to support a given candidate. Right. Now we have the effects of the Electoral College rules on presidential elections. The most important fact about the Electoral College is that almost all in almost all the states, the presidential candidate who wins the popular vote in the state gets all the electoral votes. This is often referred to as the winner-take-all rule of the Electoral College. Maine and Nebraska are the only two exceptions to the winner-take-all rule. In those two states, some of the electoral votes are distributed according to which presidential candidates win which congressional districts in the state. One of the most interesting aspects of the Electoral College is that in order to win the presidency, a candidate does not have to win a majority of the popular vote throughout the nation. What a candidate has to do is just win a simple majority of the Electoral College, which is 270 of the total 538 electoral votes. So it is electoral votes and not popular votes that win the right to occupy the White House for the ensuing four years. As a result, each presidential candidate quickly develops a shortlist. That's a list of the minimum number of states the candidate needs in order to win 270 or more votes in the college. At the top of the list are the states and their electoral votes that the candidate is most likely to win without expending very much campaign time or money. At the bottom of the list are the states and their votes where the race is very close. These are the states the candidate must win to get that electoral college majority. And, and that's, we know those states are swing states, swing right. vote states. So. Now, with us having just in the century two elections that the winner did not win the popular vote, people have grumbled about the Electoral College and changing right. it. And there have been some alternatives put forward. Right. Mostly now, what I hear is people just complain without giving alternatives, but there right. have been some. Right. I have the perfect solution, but it's <laughs> not one of these that have been, have been put up. Right. Now, to move to a popular vote. To the move one to that a popular our founding fathers vote, went to so much trouble to make sure we never did. Right. They did, mm -hmm. they did not want that at all. Right. Um, it, it would require a constitutional amendment, and that's not an easy task. Right. Um, that's two-thirds of both houses and approval from three-fourths of the states. So any proposed constitutional amendment faces a monumental uphill battle. Right. But one method is the district method. Now, because states get to choose whatever method they like for divvying up the electors, some would love to see more states use the district method, and this would not require a constitutional amendment. Maine and Nebraska do it now, where two electoral votes go to the candidate who wins the popular vote statewide, 
and the rest will go to the popular vote winners in each congressional district. Now, we know that gerrymandering is a thing, and that would have to be addressed to use this method. There's also the proportional plan. Now, electoral votes are awarded in direct proportion to the percentage of popular vote each candidate receives in each state. And then you have now the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. This would not require a constitutional amendment. In this plan, states award their electors to whoever wins a popular vote nationwide, not statewide. Now, so far, 11 states, and they total up 165 electoral votes, have signed on. To take effect, it would need 270, enough states to total 270. And right right now, most people don't think that would withstand a constitutional challenge because you can't change anything that would harm a smaller state. And this may be found to harm smaller states. Right. Some people ask why we should keep it the way that it is. And the answers to that would be history and tradition. The obvious, it would require a constitutional amendment. There's really no clear consensus on an alternative. It collectively benefits small states and it benefits competitive states. So the competitive states like that. And it favors the two-party system, which while unpopular, that does maintain a lot of stability. So what's your preference, Chuck? What would you like to see happen? I have a plan, Karen. Okay. My plan is this. It's Mm -hmm. proportional. Okay. If you win 49% of the Ohio Mm -hmm. and the other person wins 51, because remember, there are three or four candidates sometimes. Mm -hmm. So to win all the electoral votes in Ohio, you don't have to win 50% of them. You just Mm -hmm. have to get the largest number. So what I would do is break it into proportion If you get 49% of the votes in Ohio, you get 49% of the electoral votes. Mm -hmm. And you get two electoral votes for winning. Right. I like that. I like that. I think mine would be the district method, but it would have to be streamlined to go by the geographical lines. And we wouldn't be able to redo the lines um, to make it work for us. I mean, obviously, that's that's not acceptable. But the district method and the proportional method aren't aren't really that far apart, actually. So No, they're not. Right. Well, for now, that is all we have to say about that. Yep. We would like to thank everyone who takes the time to listen to us. You can always find us at Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes. We really appreciate you taking the time to drop us a positive review, and you can do that on our page now as well, and we'd really appreciate that. Yes, you can. You can go right to our page and give us five stars if you like. Now, we have a pretty active Facebook group. If you'd like to join, you can find us on Facebook at Ransom Reason Podcast Facebook group. We also want to thank our moderators. They do a great job at keeping things in order and keeping the posts off the page that shouldn't be on there and getting the ones on there that should be on there. Yeah, yeah. You can also follow us. We would love that on Twitter at Rants Reason. And if you would like to help us offset costs of the show, we do have a Patreon page. And you can find us on Patreon as Rants and Reason. And that is all we have to say. So thank you. And until next Monday. Thanks. Bye.